Section 1 of Modern Russian Literature by D. S. Mirsky. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Age of the Great Novelists. 1. The Natural School. Aksakov. From the first successes of the quote-unquote Natural School in 1846 to the death of Chekhov in 1904, Russian literature was entirely dominated by the realistic novel. The drama was a mere biform of the novel, and poetry a backwater of secondary importance. In the course of these sixty years, the Russian novel underwent many changes and assumed many different forms, but all the work of the period has enough of common characteristics to allow us to treat the Russian novelists from Aksakov and Turgenev to Chekhov and Gorky as a single school. One of these characteristics is a marked preponderance of character over plot. In the art of character drawing, the Russian novelists have few equals, but their narrative was often deficient, and with few exceptions they were not exactly thrilling storytellers. They held in contempt everything smacking of quote-unquote artificial intrigue and tended to make their stories and their plays quote-unquote slices of life. Hence the difficulty of distinguishing between fiction and autobiography. Another important characteristic is a certain, at least apparent, disregard for style. Even a great and careful stylist like Turgenev endeavors to make his style beautiful by the absence rather than by the presence of anything striking. This tendency is traceable to the example of Pushkin and Lermontov, but not to Gogol. It may degenerate into atrocious journalese, but at its best it is full of subtle art and almost classical restraint. There was no quote-unquote fine writing in Russia between Gogol and the symbolists. The realism of the Russian novelist implied choosing his subject from contemporary or almost contemporary Russian life. Great stress was laid on the exact description of the milieu and minute truthfulness of detail. The story was meant and expected by the critics to have a direct bearing on the political or social problems of the day. The writer sometimes tried to shirk this onerous task, but he was invariably reminded of it by the critic, and the novel, as a more ambitious form than the short story, always recognized the obligation. Underlying the whole work of the school there is a definite ethical outlook. It is idealistic and humanistic in substance, it lays stress on the value of the human personality and attaches great importance to the standards not so much of conduct as of conscience. For the essential ethical problems of the Russian novelists are always problems of conscience rather than of action. It was this ethical element and the broad human sympathy of the Russian novelists that most struck the Western mind, when Russian literature was revealed to it. Melchior de Vaugouet's book on the Russian novel is a lasting monument of this first impression. The pedigree of the Russian novel is traditionally traced to Gogol, 
and we have seen that it may be even more plausibly traced to Pushkin and to Lermontov, but for an example played a still more important part in the rise of Russian realism. This example was mainly French. Dickens, for all his popularity, about 1845, does not appear to have exercised any appreciable influence. Georges Sand was the idol of the generation, and her importance in this connection can scarcely be exaggerated. Balzac had an equally devoted but less extensive circle of followers, and Stendhal was an important influence in the formation of Tolstoy's art. France has more than once been the great reservoir of literary culture from which Russian literature drew fresh force, like Antaeus from Mother Earth. 1846 was the Annus Mirabilis of the Natural School. It saw the publication of the first novels of Goncharov and Dostoevsky, of the first of Turgenev's sketches of a sportsman, and of the first fragments of Aksakov's family chronicle. Other works, now more or less forgotten, contributed to the effect of a sudden renaissance. Problem novels by Herzen, whose fault, and Truzhinin, Polinka Sachs, both testifying to the influence of Georges Sand and Grigorovich's stories of peasant life, where the peasant appears for the first time in literature. In 1850 appeared the first novel of Pisemsky and the first play of Ostrovsky. In 1852, Tolstoy's Childhood was printed. After that, new stars appeared in the firmament with less startling frequency, while the welcome accorded to them ceased to be unanimous. Saltikov began his satirical career in 1857. Leskov, for years to come neglected by the critics, published his first story in 1863. The period from the end of the Crimean War, 1856, to the outbreak of the Polish Rebellion, 1862, was an era of liberal reform, of great expectations and great political excitement. It was also the time when the masterpieces of Aksakov, Turgenev, Goncharov, Pisimsky and Ostrovsky followed each other in dazzling abundance. After 1862, the older writers began to grow weary and lose sympathy with the intelligentsia. Younger writers began to displace the classics, for they had become classics, in popular favor, but the young generation turned out to be ephemeral and ineffective, and the old had yet its best to produce. The following period is chiefly memorable for the great novels of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, which appeared between 1864 and 1880. This last date marks the approximate end of the golden age of the novel. Tolstoy's Confession was written in 1879 and published in 1882. Dostoevsky died in 1881, Turgenev in 1883. The field was left to inferior men, the best of whom, like Garshin and Korolenko, did not reach to the waist of the smallest of the older novelists. Russian realism appeared to be languishing away, but there was yet to come the wonderful Indian summer of Chekhov. Chekhov was the crest of a second and last wave in the history of Russian realism. 
His death in 1904 marks the end. Before his death, there had arisen a younger group of writers who, about 1900, aroused great expectations. But though Gorky and Bunin have produced work of a high order, the work of this generation turned out to be but the dying echo of a great past. A new age was preluded by different voices. The period which witnessed the rise and decline of the Russian novel was a period of radical changes in Russian life. I am not going to give any detailed account of these changes, nor do I advise the reader to reconstruct the social history of Russia in the second half of the 19th century from the data of Russian fiction. Realism or no realism, Russian fiction is, after all, art, and art is always a creation, an invention, if you like, or a selection. It can never become the equivalent of an ordnance survey map or to use a more hackneyed phrase of a photograph. But a photograph was just what Russian critics wanted. Continental and English critics have occasionally been led astray into this heresy, but it must be emphasized again and again that to reconstruct history from literature shows a lack of respect for literature and a lack of understanding of history. To judge the relations between a literary work and the society depicted in it, the critic must have a sound knowledge of the society from extra-imaginative sources. However, a few words must be said about the very profound changes in Russian society. The great political and social event of the period was the emancipation of the serfs, and this was one of the many causes of another great social change which had a direct bearing on literary life, the decline and gradual disappearance of that class which had produced the literature of the classical period, the landed gentry. The older generation of writers, from Goncharov, born 1812, to Tolstoy, born 1828, for the most part belonged to the gentry. But the gentry had begun to disintegrate before the middle of the century, it ceased to be the united class it had been in the days of Pushkin, and part of it was already developing into an intelligentsia. Only a few men of the generation, notably Tolstoy and Fett, were men of a distinct caste consciousness. The others, including Turgenev, were more or less déclassés. The emancipation dealt the coup de grâce to the old class forms of the gentry, it made a clean sweep of the middle layers, which formed the great majority and most active part, leaving the aristocracy isolated and unrooted. A new class, the intelligentsia, took the place of the gentry as the vessel of national culture. It was constituted by the more or less incomplete fusion of the educated elements of the middle gentry with the so-called rasnachinsi, that is, men of all ranks self-made intellectuals who had studied at the university and higher schools. This intelligentsia is the dominant feature of Russian life between the Emancipation and the Great Revolution. Practically all the writers born after 1830 belong to it. It is a varied and fluctuating class, and its chief characteristics are an absence of deep-rooted tradition and a permanent dissatisfaction with existing conditions. 
it attained to its highest literary expression in the works of Chekhov. Before we come to the generation of the 40s, the men born between 1812 and 1828, we must turn our attention to Sergei Timofeyevich Aksakov, a man of a much older generation whose genius was revealed to him only in his old age under the influence of Gogol. This is a striking case of the peculiar nature of Gogol's influence. It is difficult to imagine two natures more unlike than Gogol's and Aksakov's. Yet it is an evident fact that his genius became conscious of itself only by the example of Gogol. Aksakov had not been able to find a suitable means of expression in the classical forms he had been brought up in. Gogol opened his eyes to the possibility of making the whole of life the subject of literary treatment. Aksakov was born in Ufa, East Russia, in 1791. The story of his grandparents and parents is told in his family chronicle. His grandfather was a pioneering landowner who had planted his new estates in the hitherto un-Russian Bashkiria. He was an uneducated and rough provincial squire who had no culture but a sound and simple moral code and a tradition of family honor and dignity. But his son, the writer's father, married a girl of a totally different class. She was the educated and cultivated daughter of a high official and a pupil of the moral philosophy of the 18th century. Aksakov took after his mother, and the careful and refined training she gave him developed that sensitiveness and introspection which produced years of childhood and recollections. Aksakov, as his readers will remember, was in intellect and feeling an extraordinarily precocious child. He lived at home till he was eight, then he was sent to the quote-unquote gymnasium of Kazan, the metropolis of the east of Russia. While he was there, the gymnasium was expanded into a university. After taking his degree in 1807, he went to Moscow and St. Petersburg, where he was introduced into certain literary and theatrical circles and became a staunch follower of Admiral Shushkov and of the extreme conservative and nationalist party in literature. He married in 1815 and for ten years carried on farming in his paternal Aksakovo, the Bagarovo of his books. But soon he discovered that he had no vocation for farming, in 1826 he came to Moscow, and his old friend Admiral Shishkov, then Minister of Education, found employment for him in the censorship. He remained in the civil service till 1839, when he retired. His family life was more than commonly happy and prosperous. His wife was a paragon of all the domestic virtues. She bore him many children, and two of his sons, Konstantin and Ivan, grew up to be prominent men of letters and leaders of the Slavophil party. Soon after the first appearance of Gogol's stories, Aksakov made his acquaintance, and the Aksakov's house became the center of that cult which played such an important part in the undoing of the great writer. 
Aksakov took rather a long time to, quote-unquote, see through the dark and disingenuous nature of his idol, and to discover how entirely incapable he was of sincerity and friendship. But he came to realize it at last. Some of his letters to Gogol are remarkable for the straightforward and intense sincerity of his deeply wounded feelings. Still, Gogol had revealed to Aksakov his latent genius, and as early as 1840, Aksakov began writing The Family Chronicle, under direct encouragement from Gogol. In 1846, fragments of it were published anonymously, but at first attracted little attention outside the Slavophil set. They were followed by books on angling, 1846, bird shooting, 1852, and sport in the Orenburg County, 1854. These produced a profound impression by their simple truth and unassuming but masterly exposition. Turgenev wrote an enthusiastic review of the second of these books, and Gogol wrote to the author, Your birds and your fish are more alive than my men and women, end quote. The atmosphere was favorable for Aksakov to make a more ambitious venture, and in 1856 appeared The Family Chronicle and Recollections. The reception they got was enthusiastic. Dobrolubov, the most influential critic of the day, proclaimed Aksakov the greatest living Russian author, and he was recognized as a national classic. Encouraged by his success, he continued writing voluminously. During the last three years of his life, he wrote Years of Childhood of Bagarov's Grandson, published 1858, a volume of literary and theatrical recollections, and numerous detached reminiscences. And he began a novel, Natasha, in which he intended to tell the life story of his younger sister. In 1858 his robust health began to fail, and his last year he lived as an invalid. Still he continued writing, and died, 1859, pen in hand. Aksakov's principal books, The Family Chronicle, Years of Childhood and Recollections have within recent years been translated into English and have met, especially the Family Chronicle, with considerable success and recognition. The Family Chronicle is no doubt the most interesting and attractive, but in years of childhood are more faithfully mirrored the author's individual idiosyncrasies, the Family Chronicle is the history of Aksakov's grandfather and the love story of his parents. Footnote. Here and in years of childhood, but not in recollections, the real names and place names are changed to fictitious ones. Aksakov becomes Bagrov and Aksakovo Bagrovo. End of footnote. The figure of the grandfather, Stepan Mikhailovich, the pioneering squire, towers above the others in biblical proportions. With his unlimited power over his wife and children, with his numerous serfs and vast estates, he is like an Old Testament patriarch. His mentality is simple and sound. His social ascendancy allows him to develop his large personality, but his family are reduced to a socially dependent and mentally inferior position. 
the figure of Stepan Mikhailovich is Aksakov's most memorable creation. The book contains more incident and more narrative interest than its sequels, and less psychology and minute analysis, for the mentality of the persons represented is simple and primitive. Aksakov's principal quality revealed here is a wonderful objectivity, an impersonal and unbiased truthfulness. The picture he drew of serfdom could be used by the radicals to prove how hideous and brutal it was, and by the Slavophiles to prove that it was a gentle form of parental authority. Years of childhood is less attractive to the general reader, and may even seem just a little tedious. It contains no incident and no narrative. It is merely the history of a little boy in the first eight years of his life, told from a wealth of observation and psychological detail. Taken as such, it is a supreme masterpiece, but a masterpiece of this kind does not appeal to everyone. Aksakov in years of childhood became even more objective than in the family chronicle. The question naturally arises whether everything Aksakov wrote was really dictated by memory, and it must be answered in the negative, or rather it must be said that his memory was an imaginative and a creative memory. It possessed the rare and beautiful power of recreating the past by developing and expanding what it had retained. However it may be, the impression produced by every line of Aksakov is one of absolute truth. His style is clear, calm, and abundant. An English translator has well applied to it the words Lactia Ubertas. It is miles away from the exuberant, varied, and contorted style of Gogol. Aksakov's other works are of subordinate importance. Recollections in its earlier parts is a direct continuation of years of childhood. In its later part, it ceases to be psychological and self-centered, and becomes an account of intellectual and cultural life of Kazan. It forms a transition to the reminiscences of literary life. These are interesting on account of the light they throw on the history of Russian civilization between 1810 and 1830. They are full of shrewd psychology, observation, and vivid expression. The memoir on Gogol, who played such an important part in Aksakov's life, is by far the most interesting and penetrating document in our possession on that extraordinary, complex, and bewildering personality. End of section 1